Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Dr. Jeffers is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. It was the Scottish essayist Thomas Carlyle who said, for every 100 people who can handle adversity, only one can handle prosperity. What is it about prosperity that causes some people to stumble in life? There's something about prosperity that naturally lures people away from God. Now, I know what you're thinking. I can read your minds by looking at you. You're thinking, Pastor, this is one message that certainly doesn't apply to me. I'm not a wealthy person. Well, you better think again. The fact is, by the world standard, if you know how you're going to eat for the next week, you're not worried about food for the next week, if you have an automobile to drive, if you have a place to stay, you are a wealthy person by the world standards. In fact, Carolyn pulled up a chart for me just this week that says, in 2022, if you're a family of four, two adults and two children, and you have an income of $50,000, you are wealthier than 89.7% of the rest of the world. We are wealthy, whether we realize it or not. And the danger of wealth is it can lead us to make decisions apart from God. Let me illustrate that. There's hardly a person in this room or watching television right now who, if you wanted to, couldn't go out to DFW Airport and either pay for or at least charge on a piece of plastic a ticket to just about anywhere in the world. You could go anywhere you wanted to. You might spend the next 30 years paying it off, but you could go anywhere in the world you wanted to go without ever asking God about his plan for your life, whether that was in his will for you or not. That's the danger of wealth. And today, we're going to look at the episode in Abraham's life that best illustrates the problem with prosperity, living apart from God. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 13 as we discover the problem with prosperity. Now, first of all, let's set the context for this story. Context is all important. Remember, when Abraham was 60 years of age, he was an idol worshiper. He wasn't a godly person. He was an idol worshiper, and yet he lived in Ur of the Chaldees, and God said to him, Abraham, I'm choosing you for a special purpose. Uh, I'm going to give you a land, a piece of real estate that's going to be yours and your descendants forever. I'm going to make you the father of a great nation, and through you, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. Abraham believed God. 
And he packed up his family, which, by the way, he shouldn't have done. God told him not to take his family. But he said, what's a little family time? That'd be good. We'll all go together as a family to this land. But remember what happened. He didn't go all the way there. He stopped in Haran because of his ungodly father's influence. And he spent 15 years in Haran living in disobedience. Finally, his dad dies, and Abraham decides to obey God after God comes back to him and said, Abraham, you're not there yet. Go to the promised land. And he arrives in the promised land. He builds an altar there. Thanks God for keeping his promise. But no sooner had he been in the promised land than he faced a crisis. There was a drought in the land that caused a famine. It threatened Abraham's livestock and Abraham's family members. And he was faced with an important question. Could I trust that the God who brought me to this new place will sustain me in this new place? By the way, some of you right now are facing that same question. Can you really trust in God? Can you trust that the God who brought you into this marriage will keep you and provide for you in this marriage? Can you trust that the God who brought you to this strange city will sustain and provide for you? Can you trust God to take care of your needs? Abraham came to the conclusion he couldn't trust God. So without consulting God, he went to Egypt. And there in Egypt, remember, <laughs> it was a disaster. Pharaoh tried to take Abraham's wife, and finally God miraculously intervened. But the last time we saw Abraham, he was making a beeline back to Canaan with his tail tucked between his legs. He ended in disgrace. And that's where we pick up the story in Genesis 13, beginning with verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, and he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and Lot, his nephew, was with him. Underline that warning sign. This is going to be a problem. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Have you ever experienced a failure in your life? Failures can do one of two things. They can either drive us further away from God, or they can drive us toward God. When you have failed, Satan will do everything he can to persuade you that your life is over. This mistake is too big to overcome. God can never forgive you. You are going to be placed on the shelf forever. That's Satan's lies. Don't believe it. There is always a path back to God. Remember the prodigal son? He took his inheritance early. He went to the far country, dissipated on wine and women and every other thing you can imagine. And when he came to the end of himself, he couldn't afford enough to eat, so he took a job feeding the swine, the pigs. He fed them the husk of grain. That was pig slop. And one day, he came to himself. He came to his senses and says, this is insane. I'm here barely existing, and my father's slaves have more than I have. I will get up, and I will return to my father and say thus and thus and thus and thus. You know, somebody once said, swine husks are often the hors d'oeuvres before the fatted calf. 
Sometimes we have to get to the very end of ourselves. We have to reach rock bottom before we come to our senses and return to the Father who loves us. There's always a path back to God. But it begins with repentance. That word repentance, metanoeo in Greek, means literally to change your mind. Repentance begins with a change of mind that says, I don't want to keep going this direction. I'm going to do a U-turn and change directions in life. And that's what Abraham did. He acknowledged his mistake. He went back to that altar where he had been before praying to God and came in the promised land. Remember this, the point of your departure is often the point, the beginning place of your return to God. Most every one of us can point to a bad decision we made that led to bad consequences. The point of return is going back to that bad decision, repenting of it, and asking God for a new direction. That's what Abraham did. And so when we last saw Abraham, he's back in that altar near Bethel, praying, asking for God's forgiveness. But even though he received God's forgiveness, that forgiveness didn't exempt him from future problems. Right around the corner, there's yet another crisis awaiting Abraham. But this time, the crisis isn't concerning how he's going to deal with a famine, with poverty. It's how he's going to deal with prosperity. And you see the conflict beginning in verse 5. Actually, there are two players, two characters in today's story. One is Abraham, and the other is his nephew Lot. Go back to verse 2 for a moment. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. That word translated very rich is the Hebrew word kabed. Literally means heavy. <laughs> Abraham was heavy with riches. As one expositor says in today's language, we would say Abraham was loaded he was weighed down with possessions, very, very wealthy. But he wasn't the only wealthy person in this story. Verse 5 says, now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. Lot was Abraham's nephew. He was the son of Abraham's dead brother, Haran. We don't know where Lot got his wealth. <clears throat> May have been he inherited it from his dad. May have been Abraham gave him some of his wealth. But he was very, <clears throat> very wealthy, and that was going to provide a problem. He had flocks and herds and tents. Now, the difference was never once do we find Lot ever acknowledging his gratitude to God for his wealth. Never once. He thought it was his own doing. He could do whatever he wanted to do. Now, we need to stop here and answer a question Bible students have wrestled with, and that is, was Lot a believer? Was he a believer? And the Bible doesn't hesitate in answering that question. Yes, without doubt, he was a believer. How can I say that with such certainty? In 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter gives a commentary on this Old Testament story. Listen to what he says in verses 7 and 8. And if God rescued righteous Lot, he calls him righteous. If God rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what Lot saw and heard, that righteous, there it is again, man, while living among them, felt his, and here it is again, his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Three times. 
Peter says, Lot was a righteous man, but he acted unrighteously. Like so many Christians today, he was carnal. He was fleshly. He walked not by faith like his uncle, he walked by sight. Now, the Bible doesn't come out and say this. This is my imagination, but I think it's a sanctified imagination. I think Lot was the reason, one of the strong reasons, Abraham made that disastrous decision to go to Egypt. Remember, God had said at the very beginning, Abram, I'm going to call you to a land, and I want you to separate yourself from your family. And Abraham didn't do it. And the first consequence of that was Terah, the father, caused Abram to stumble and stay in Haran for 15 years instead of going to the promised land. God had to take Terah home through death before Abraham got the personal fortitude to march on to Canaan. And now he takes Lot with him to Canaan. Because he didn't separate himself from Lot, I believe when they got to Canaan, the promised land, and they suffered that drought, Lot, a man lacking in faith, was the one who sounded the alarm and said, Abraham, we gotta do something to protect our family, our livestock. The only rational thing to do is to go down to Egypt where there's plenty of places for our animals to graze. And Abraham made that mistake of listening to Lot and he went to Egypt. He comes back realizing he'd made a mistake. He knelt down at the altar at Bethel and began to pray. Now, what did he pray for? I'm sure he asked for God's forgiveness for the bad mistake. I'm sure he also prayed for God's forgiveness for his disobedience and not separating himself from his family. I'm sure he said, God, I should have listened to you years ago and separated from Lot. Please help me get out of this situation. <laughs> Be careful of what you pray for. God just might answer that prayer. In fact, sometimes we pray, we really don't know whether God will say yes or no because we don't know if we're praying in God's will. Faith in praying means boldly asking God for what is in our heart, but quietly trusting in his answer, whatever the answer is. However, whenever we pray for something we know is the will of God, according to Scripture, we can be certain God is going to answer. That's what 1 John 5, 14 is all about. And this is the confidence we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, we know that he hears us. If you ask anything according to the will of God, you can know that God is going to answer that prayer, and he may do it in an unusual way. That's how he answered the prayer for Abraham, to separate from Lot. He sent this crisis that came from great wealth. Look at verse 6. And the land, that is Canaan, what would be Israel, could not sustain Abraham and Lot while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. Their wealth had grown so much, especially the livestock, there wasn't enough land to feed them on. And that produced strife. Look at verse seven. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. You know what's interesting? This is the first time, this is the first chapter in the Bible where wealth is mentioned. And it's in a negative context. Wealth causes conflict. Now, it's not saying wealth is necessarily sinful. You can use wealth for great good, but just be aware that wealth can cause conflict. 
I see it all the time. A couple gets married in their young adult years and they barely scrape by providing for themselves and their family, but they get to a certain stage of life in which they experience prosperity. And guess what? They realize they don't need each other and they decide to separate from one another. They can be self-sufficient without the other person. Or here's a family-run company. They start together, barely making it, wondering how they're gonna meet payroll week after week, but God prospers the business, and with that business comes disagreements among the family members. When should we sell the company? Who ought to succeed, the CEO, and all of these conflicts money creates? That's what happened with Abraham and Lot. It caused conflict. There's not enough land. This land isn't big enough for the two of us. We've got to do something. Now, notice the parenthetical statement in verse 7. Now, the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling in the land. What is that all about? You know who lived in Canaan before Abraham got there? This This is a Bible quiz. Who lived in Canaan before Abraham got there? the Canaanites. (laughs) Took me seven years in seminary to figure that out. The Canaanites lived in Canaan. They were ungodly. They were not thrilled with Abraham and Lot being interlopers who took their land from them. And so they were looking for any opportunity to overthrow Abraham and Lot and their family and get them out of the land. You know what? Abraham said, Let's not let that happen. Let's don't let there be strife between you and me, for we are brothers. Abraham understood the truth that Jesus would echo many years later when he said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. (laughs) You know, people are so ignorant of the Bible today. They think Abraham Lincoln is the one who came up with those words. Abraham Lincoln stole that from Jesus. Jesus is the one who said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Abraham was saying, look, Lot, we're brothers. We're one family. The enemy is not you or me. The enemy is them. Let's remember we are brothers. Christians, we need to remember that today. In Romans 12, 10, Paul said, let us be devoted to one another in brotherly love. That word brotherly, adelphos in Greek, means we are from the same womb. Paul is saying, the enemy we're facing is not another Christian. Quit the strife, quit the fighting. Our enemy is not other Christians. The enemy is Satan, and he's looking for any opportunity to divide Christians and destroy them. We need to remember we're from the same womb. The same blood, the blood of Jesus Christ flows through us. That's what unites us to one another. Abraham understood that. And it's out of that spirit that he was going to offer a compromise. Let's not let there be any strife. You know, in our culture, compromise means weakness. Our philosophy in America is don't give an inch in negotiations. Stand your ground. Don't leave anything on the table. That is a carnal perspective. God says, be willing to make peace. Proverbs 17, 14 says, the beginning of strife is like the letting out of water, so abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. 
Proverbs 19.11, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. So in that spirit, Abraham offers a compromise. Look at Genesis 13.9. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you want to go to the left, then I'll go to the right, or if to the right, then I'll go to the left. In other words, Lot, you choose whatever land you want, and I'll take what is left over. Why was Abraham willing to do that? Why was he willing to be taken advantage of? Three reasons. First of all, Abraham had a greater purpose. He had a greater purpose in life. You know, every life, listen to this, every life is either self-focused or it's God-focused. It's one or the other. It can't be both. Lot was self-focused. His credo for living was get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the can. That was Lot's philosophy. Look out for number one. Abraham's focus was the glory of God. He knew that if strife broke out between them, if the Canaanites overtook them because of that division, the reputation of God would be ruined because God had promised them that land. And so, he put the interest of God above his own. He had a greater reward. Secondly, not only did he have a greater purpose in life, he possessed a greater faith than Lot. Now, it hadn't always been that way. There had been a time in Abraham's life when he thought he was responsible for his own well-being. And that's what led him to make that disastrous trip to Egypt that almost cost him his wife. But after that, he learned his lesson. He believed that God could be trusted to take care of him. I like what one biographer of Abraham has written. The person who is sure of God can afford to hold loosely the things of this world. And finally, he not only possessed a greater faith, he looked for a greater reward. He was looking for a greater reward. You know, if you go to an investment counselor to get advice on how to invest your money, after they find out how much money you have, the question they will ask you is, what is your investment horizon? In other words, when are you going to need this money? If you're going to need this money in the next year, in the next 12 months, well, you can't afford to take any risk. You better put it in the bank. You don't earn much, but you don't risk losing it. But if you're not going to need it for five years or 10 years, or your retirement's not for 30 years, you can afford to take riskier investments because although you may have some short-term losses, in the long term, you'll have more reward, more returns. Abraham looked at his investment horizon. It wasn't the next year, the next five years, or the next hundred years. His investment horizon was eternity. He was thinking in terms of eternity of eternal rewards that would keep on paying dividend after dividend after dividend, and that's why he could take a risk in losing this land in the short term in order to please God. That's what Hebrews 11.10 is all about. For Abraham was looking for the city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. He was looking at heaven, not this life, and because of that, he was willing to risk a loss. What did this compromise mean for Lot and Abraham? Look at the consequences, first of all, for Lot. Some of you right now are facing a choice about a career, about a move, about a mate, 
about your money. You're facing a choice right now. I want you to notice the three mistakes Lot made in his bad decision to take the land that looked the best to him. First of all, he refused to be content with his present circumstances. He refused to be content. It was that discontent that led him to make the wrong decision. Look at verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw all the valley of the Jordan that it was well watered everywhere. This was, by the way, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities in that valley. But it looked luscious like the garden of the Lord, that is Eden, and like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. The Bible says as he looked out there to what he was going to choose, he saw the land, the oasis of the Jordan. That word saw in Hebrew means more than he just glanced at it. Literally, the word saw means to look longingly at, to gaze, to say, that's what I want. That's what I need. You know what the greatest enemy of contentment, satisfaction in your life and my life is? It's what I call the oasis syndrome. To believe that there is an oasis out there that is different than where I am, that if only I could reach that oasis, then I could truly be happy. If only I had that job. If only I lived in that city. If only I had that home. If only I had that amount of money. If only I had that mate, then I could truly be satisfied in life. That's the oasis syndrome. Happiness is someplace other than where I am right now. <laughs> I remember years ago, decades ago, I wrote a book on the oasis syndrome and I was doing some radio interviews and uh, I was doing an interview with this one pastor whose last name is synonymous with positive thinking in America. And I kept talking about the dangers of the oasis syndrome. And finally, he interrupted me. He said, pastor, what is wrong with the oasis? Our toll-free number is 1-800-OASIS. I said, this is what the problem is with the oasis. It always outdistances you. You never quite get there. It's always someplace just beyond where you are. That's why the secret for satisfaction is not more. It's the word contentment. Paul said it this way in Philippians 4.11, for I have I've learned, Philippians 4.11, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. That word contentment comes from a word that literally means containment. It refers to somebody whose happiness is found inwardly, not outwardly. He is self-contained. And of course, for a Christian, that containment is a relationship with Jesus Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Lot didn't have that contentment. That led him to make a bad decision. Secondly, not only did he refuse to be content, he failed to consult God in his decision. Genesis 13, 11 says, so Lot chose for himself all the valleys of the Jordan and he journeyed eastward. Not once is there any indication he prayed to God for wisdom. He just made the choice and went after it. You know, the longer I'm in ministry, I am convinced that the majority of Christians are really atheists. 
I'm not talking about theological atheists, not yet anyway, but they're practical atheists. They get up in the morning, they go to work, they go through their activity list, they come home, they spend their money, they do that. They do this without ever once thinking about God or consulting God. They live their lives as if there were no God whom they should consult, a God to whom they are accountable. That's what you call an atheist, somebody who lives apart from, without God. James had a word about that in James 14, 4, beginning with verse 13. He said, come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit, yet you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. <laughs> You're just a vapor. You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Is James saying we shouldn't plan? No. But he is saying we shouldn't plan without God. He says in verse 15, instead what you ought to say is, if the Lord wills, we will live, and then we'll do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. What was Lot's mistake? He refused to be content. He failed to consult God. And third, and this is so important, he neglected to consider his family and his decision. He neglected to consider his family. Look at verses 12 and 13. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. He moved to the edge of Sodom. What was the mistake? He never once thought about how it would affect his family. He made this choice because, first of all, he underestimated the power of sin. Now, listen to me. He underestimated the power of sin. Lot was a righteous man. He had heard all the stories about what life in Sodom was like. He knew it was an exceedingly wicked place, but he thought, I'm strong enough to withstand it. So he moved to the edge of Sodom. Not into Sodom, just on the edge of Sodom. He probably rationalized it. Well, I need to be a witness to this community. So I'll get as close to the edge of sin as I possibly can. But Lot's motivation was not the glory of God. It was his own lust that drew him to the edge of Sodom, his own curiosity. Interestingly, next time when we see Lot again, he's right smack dab in the middle of Sodom. He's like the proverbial moth that tries to fly as close to the flame as possible without getting burned. And it usually doesn't work out real well for the moth. It didn't for Lot, that's for sure. No, wisdom is not getting to the edge of sin. It's running as far from sin as you possibly can. 2 Timothy 2.22, Paul says, Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Not only did he underestimate the power of sin, but he overestimated the spiritual strength of his family. You see, the Bible indicates that Lot was distressed by the wickedness of Sodom. But there's no evidence that his wife and two daughters were distressed by it. 
Even though Lot thought he could handle the temptation, he never once thought about what this decision, what this move to another city, another place would mean for his wife and for his two daughters. They weren't distressed by the wickedness. His wife ends up being destroyed. His two daughters marry men who were exceedingly wicked, the Scripture says, and they were destroyed. When a father, a mother makes a decision, they need to think about what this decision means, not just for themselves, but for their family as well. Even though I may have the freedom to do something, it doesn't mean I should do it. May I be real practical in how I illustrate that? Talk about a really controversial subject in Christian circles today. A couple of weeks ago at our dinner with the pastor, a young woman who's new to our church said, Pastor, what is First Baptist policy on alcohol? Are members allowed to drink? What about the policy toward alcohol? Now, let's be honest. There's no scripture verse that says, no drop of alcohol shall ever pass through thy lips. There's no verse that says that. There's no verse that says you're going to hell if you have a drink. The Bible says you're not to get drunk. And even more than that, you're not allowed anything, anybody or anything control your life other than the Holy Spirit of God. But there's no absolute prohibition against a Christian drinking but that's not the question. The question is not whether it's okay for me to do it, whether or not I can handle alcohol. It's how my freedom impacts other people. Even though my freedom gives me the opportunity to drink, how will that affect other people who may not be able to handle alcohol? What about my children? I don't know if they're able to handle alcohol or not. The statistics are right now, uh, 15 million Americans are already diagnosed as alcoholics. That's 6% of the American population. What if you went out to DFW Airport, you're about to get on a plane, and the ticket agent said, now before you board today, we're required to tell you there's six chances in 100 that this plane is going to crash. How many of you would get on the plane? So I'm willing to take my chances. No sane person would do that. Now, are you willing to take that chance yourself? You don't know whether you're an alcoholic or not till it's too late. And even if you're not, are you absolutely sure your children or grandchildren aren't in that percent, that 6%? No, Lot made the mistake of not considering his own family and the impact this decision would make on them. And because of that, he lost everything dear to him. What was the result of Abraham making the choice he did to give up his rights to the land? Look at this in verse 14. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. I love what one writer said. He said, for Abraham, the place of surrender became the place of possession. 
when Abraham opened his hands and said, Lord, for your glory, I'll surrender this land. Abraham said, God said to Abraham, that's all I needed to hear. This land is yours forever and ever and ever. Nobody will take it from you. The Old Testament scholar, Alan Ross, said it this way. Abraham had learned that it was not by his own plan or power that he would come into possession, not by jealously guarding what he thought was his. God would give it to him even if Abraham gave it away a hundred times. The place of surrender became the place of possession. Have you learned that lesson yet? Do you understand that if you put God's interest and in the interest of others above your own, God will take care of you? You may have read recently about David Green, the founder and CEO of Hobby Lobby. He is a multi-billionaire and a committed Christian. He was here on our church campus a week and a half ago, and um, he recently announced that he's giving away his company, his multi-billion dollar company. He did an interview with Ben. We're going to air it on iCampus next week at the end of this service. And he says one of the things that motivated him to give it away, the foundational belief was he wasn't the owner of anything. It all belonged to God. He was just a steward a manager of what God had given him. It was because of that attitude, I believe God blessed David Green. And he'll do the same with you, maybe not financially, but spiritually and in every other way that counts. What about those dreams, those possessions, those relationships? You can hold on them tightly, just like Lot did, and end up losing everything. Or you can open up your hands, give it to God, trust him to do what is right and best for you. As I read the story this week, I thought of the words of Jim Elliott, that faithful missionary who was killed by the Aka Indians in Ecuador. When he was a college student, he had written in his spiritual journal these words, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That was Abraham. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.